0: Happiness can be found even in the darkest of times, if one only remembers to turn on the light. If you recognized that quote, you are going to love this week's sponsor. This episode is sponsored by The Time Turner, Harry Potter In-Depth, which is a podcast run by two siblings who love Harry Potter, and they're rereading all seven books and sharing it with you. In this podcast, they dig deeper into those remaining questions that we all have. The episodes can range from serious to deep dives into character flaws and plot holes, but it's also entertaining and hilarious with plot lines that every Harry Potter fan will appreciate. Book number one, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Book number two, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets are available in full on Apple Podcasts, Spotify iHeartRadio, and a variety of other podcast streaming platforms. Book number three, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, was released at the beginning of August, which will continue episode by episode. So stay tuned for book number four. Make sure to go subscribe to The Time Turner, Harry Potter, in Depth, and let them know that Pocketful of Crime sent you. You can also follow them on both Instagram and Twitter at Turner. Now back to the episode. Hi, hello, my weird friends. Welcome back to Pocket Philip Crime, a true crime podcast where I entertain you with real true crime cases, real people, real murders and or missing individuals. If you are new, don't forget to subscribe. Set your alerts to be notified every time I drop a new episode. And for additional Pocket Full of Crime content, be sure to keep up with me and follow me on Facebook and Instagram. At Pocket Full of Crime, I post pictures from each episode's case and additional content you won't want to miss out on. I have a good episode for you guys today. However, I am currently working on a very big case. I'm working on one that was requested by a fellow listener who shares the same name as me. Hey Rachel, it's Rachel. This case that I'm working on is somewhat local. Um, It's about within two hour driving distance to the family and about an hour to the actual crime site. So I wanted to get your feedback on a documentary style case where I upload interview audio, audio of me traveling to the crime site and maybe some documented video footage for my youtube channel this case is going to be an entire series in itself there is so much to cover and a lot of detail so if this is something that interests you be sure to let me know on my social media or you can email me at pocketbillthecrime at gmail.com let's address the pink elephant in the room i'm so sorry that i have been m.i.a I am so terribly busy with work, with kids, I'm managing about four different careers right now, and I'm going back to college this October, so apologies that my uploads aren't as frequent. I promise you, I think about you guys all the time. Now, let's get into the episode. There is a movie based around the true events of this case. You may have recognized the name of the title today. We are discussing the kidnapping of Colleen Stan, the girl in the box. This particular case is different from most I cover on my podcast because the victim survived. So she lived to tell her story and there were books written and a movie based off of these true events. However, when I was doing my research and trying to find some good sources, I even rented the movie and I watched the documentary on YouTube. So, there are a lot of conflicting stories of what exactly happened swirling online, so I will be basing this off of the documentary and Colleen's own testimony. It was December 31st, 1956, that Colleen J. Stan was born. In 1977, 20-year-old Colleen was living with her parents in Eugene, Oregon. It was May 19th. 1977, when Colleen would do something a lot of people did in the 70s to get to where they needed to go. She decided she was going to hitchhike to Northern California to surprise her friend on her birthday. Westwood, California from Eugene, Oregon was 379.9 miles away, making for a 6-hour, 13-minute drive. Colleen's car wasn't in running condition at the time, so she chose plan B to hitchhike her way there. After all, she thought of herself as an experienced hitchhiker. She knew what kind of rides to accept and which to pass on. I just wanted to add a little side note here that in the 70s, not only was hitchhiking more common, but also people who chose to stop for hitchhikers and give them rides was also not uncommon as well, First, now in 2020 or even in the past 10 to 15 to 20 years, um, hitchhiking has become less common and popular because, you know, safety and we all listen to that one girl who has that one true crime podcast talking about these things. Colleen set out on her journey and was able to hitchhike a ride with several truck drivers, and by early afternoon, she had made it to Red Bluff, California. Westwood would have only been another 84 miles west, or an hour and a half drive to her destination. However, she would never make it to that birthday party. Colleen was dropped off by a truck driver on I-5, where she walked up the off-ramp to Highway 36 to continue hitchhiking the rest of the way. One vehicle stopped, packed with five men. Colleen did not feel comfortable accepting the ride and passed on their offer. The next vehicle to stop was a two-door Dodge Colt. Colleen was relieved when she seen a couple and a young baby inside of the vehicle. Colleen accepted the ride and got into the back seat. The driver of the vehicle was Cameron Hooker, 23 at the time, his wife Janice Hooker, who was only 19, and their eight-month-old baby girl. Along the ride, Colleen made statements later that Cameron kept looking at her through the rear-view mirror. Cameron stopped along the way at a gas station to fill up his car, and Colleen got out of the back seat to use the restroom inside. In Colleen's own words while she used the restroom, a voice was in the back of her head telling her to run, jump out of a window, and never look back. I think I hear that same voice like every single day. However, Colleen ignored that voice and gut feeling and climbed back into the back seat. She noticed a box beside her that wasn't there before. She didn't raise any question. Just took note. Now, Cameron had driven far enough into an isolated area only 20 minutes later. He and his wife, Janice, asked Colleen if it was alright with her if they stopped to look at some ice caves along the way. Colleen was eager to make it to her destination, however, she was just thankful for the ride and they promised it wouldn't take long. Cameron pulled off the road and parked in an isolated area. Janice and the baby got out of the car and walked down to a nearby creek. Colleen could see them from the car window. Cameron had gotten out of the car as well, but Colleen looked around and didn't see him from where she was, sitting in the back seat. Cameron came around to the passenger side where Colleen was sitting. He startled her and held a knife to her neck while he blindfolded her, handcuffed, and instructed her to place her head inside the box next to her on the seat. The box had hinges and opened like a clam in Colleen's words. There was an opening for her neck and inside it was insulated with carpet for soundproof purposes. You can actually see pictures of the real box over on my Instagram where I will upload photos. This box is otherwise called a a bondage head box and Google at your own risk, but you probably shouldn't. Just saying. Colleen now was laid across the back seat with her head in the box, blindfolded and handcuffed. She heard Janice and the baby get back into the car. Cameron got back on the highway and headed back towards Red Bluff to the family's home on Oak Street. What is it about the name Oak Street that like? draws in multiple murders or movies or is that just me? I feel like I've heard about a ton of crime, mostly murders that happen on Oak Street. So heads up, if you're moving, just, just pass on the Oak Street listing. Just run, jump out a window, run and never look back. The couple exited the car. Cameron removes the box from Colleen's head. But still blindfolded, he leads her into the home's basement. Now, this next part is a little graphic, so now is your chance to mute if you have little ears around or if you get triggered by these subjects. Here's your second warning. If you get triggered or have little ears, just pause. Come back to this later. Final warning. Listener discretion is at In 321. Down in the basement, Colleen is stripped of all her clothing and bound by her hands from the ceiling. Cameron started to physically attack Colleen, whipping and beating her. Through the blindfold, she could see a glimpse of Cameron and Janice kissing. They proceeded to have sex right underneath Colleen's strung up body. Once Cameron and Janice finished having sex, Cameron walked over to Colleen and started to put his hands on her, rubbing his hands down her body. Colleen blacks out, but when she regained consciousness, she recalls being unhooked from the ceiling, then Cameron leads her to the corner of the basement where a coffin size wooden crate laid. Colleen was ordered into the box, and the head box was placed back over her head. Cameron shuts the crate and leaves. That was night one of the seven years Colleen would be in captivity. So let's talk about this piece of shit kidnapper. His name is Cameron Hooker. He was born in Alturas, California in 19. 19- 53. As a child, Cameron was moved around quite a bit with his family. A former elementary school teacher recalls Cameron being a happy kid who enjoyed making other classmates laugh. In 1969, when Cameron Hooker was now 16 years old, the Hooker family finally settled down in Red Bluff, California. Red Bluff is on the northern edge of Sacramento Valley. Back in 1969, Red Bluff's population was around 7,676, which has since doubled in size today. Now, everyone goes through that awkward teenage years where our bodies change. We experience the personality changes along with hormones and trying to fit in. Being moved from one place to another during Cameron's childhood, You could imagine how difficult it was for him to make friends or even feel comfortable making friends with fear of picking up and leaving again. 16 years old is about the time Cameron's personality began to change outside of the normal teenage phase. He was more withdrawn than ever and he avoided social activities. It wouldn't be until Cameron turned 19 years old his true dark side would reveal itself. What is so significant about the age of 19? Well, this was the year he met his 15-year-old future bride, Janice. Janice was young and innocent and had stated, quote, No matter how good or rotten a guy was to me, I just kind of latched onto him, end quote. Janice was an easy-to-groom target into Cameron's first victim. She was abused by her family and had no sentimental relationships prior to Cameron. Janice recalls how nice, tall, and good-looking he was, and she was just delighted in the interest from an older boy. Janice was not introduced to sex until she met Cameron, so when he asked to suspend her from a tree with leather handcuffs, she simply went along with this and his weird fantasies. Afterward, Cameron would be so affectionate and loving towards Janice, and this is what kept her from non-compliance. However, as the relationship grew, the sexual fantasy abuse got more severe with time. Cameron and Janice were married in 1975, Cameron was 22 at the time, and Janice was only 18. Cameron Hooker was a lumber mill worker at Diamond International Lumber Mill. He was somewhat normal to the average person, but when he got home to Janice, the violent sex acts included whippings, being choked, and even being held underwater where Cameron nearly killed his new bride. Janice did not like these sex acts. However, she was so young when first introduced to sex, she didn't know any different. She just desperately desired a child, which is what led to a strange agreement the same year the couple was married. Cameron and Janice came to an agreement, or a contract, if you will, that Cameron would be allowed to kidnap a, in quotations, slave girl. replace Janice as the sole victim to Cameron's abuse. This agreement, however, came with conditions, as they always do. I'm a realtor, always read the fine print. Cameron was allowed to act out his bondage fantasies with this slave beating and all, but was not allowed to have sex with her. This was to be saved for Janice so she could get pregnant and have children without danger to herself or the baby. In 1976, Cameron and Janice Hooker gave birth to their first daughter and a year later, Cameron made sure Janice withheld her end of the bargain. The baby was 8 months old, out for a drive, when Cameron found Colleen. Who would become his slave. Colleen would later testify that in her captivity, she was kept in the wooden box for 23 hours a day, then taken out and abused and tortured. From the crime scene photos that I have seen, the wooden box could be described as like a wooden coffin. This cycle of abuse and torture continued to 1978 when Colleen was removed from the box and presented with a contract. Yes, a contract. A contract in which Colleen was forced into signing herself into slavery for life. And the contract stated Colleen's new slave name would be K. Just the letter K. Colleen had heard her capture's names by hearing them speak to one another. However, on the contract, the names were written as aliases, which was Michael Powers and Janice Powers. Within the contract, Michael Powers was granted full and absolute control over Colleen's body, soul, and any possession she might acquire. She was to address him as Master, was not allowed to speak without permission. Janice also signed the contract as a witness to the signing. Colleen was now referred to Kay and given a collar to wear around her neck. As we would all hope that if we were put into this situation that we would fight like hell and somehow find a way to escape, but how did Cameron remain such dominance and control over Colleen? Well, he told Colleen he was a part and being watched by a big, powerful sex trafficking organization called The Company. She was reminded often that in any attempt to escape, The Company would painfully torture her and harm her family. Cameron, at this point, wanted to act out a scene from the 1954 erotic novel, quote, story of O." End quote. I will let you do your own research on that if you are interested in more detail. However, this was when Cameron began to orally rape Colleen. He did not want to penetrate her as he felt it would be a breach in the contract to his wife, Janice. So, he stuck with oral rape and anally with, in quotations, implements whatever that means. Rape is rape. Penetration is penetration. Janice actually started to get jealous of all the time that Cameron had been spending with his slave. So in an act to test his loyalty to the contract, Janice asked Cameron if he would bring Kay upstairs to have sex together. To her surprise and disgust, Cameron went downstairs to the basement, drove Kay upstairs, and raped her in the bed next to Janice. This was when the relationship started to change between their marriage, but also Janice and Colleen. Janice would let her out of the box for Bible study and started to see Colleen as not a slave but as a victim that she could relate to. The whole Hooker family, Cameron, Janice, their child, and including Colleen, ended up moving to a trailer house, still located in Red Bluff. However, this trailer house did not have a basement, so this presented the issue of where they would keep Colleen hidden away. Colleen was then locked away in her wooden box underneath the couple's waterbed until Cameron could come up with a better hiding place. In 1978, Janice Hooker gave birth to her second child, right on the waterbed, right above Colleen to hear. Colleen later stated, quote, her faith in God and belief in a chance to escape helped her survive, end quote. This was in reference to the miserable years and conditions in captivity. Her greatest fear was the company, in which Cameron reiterated to her almost daily. In order to avoid painful punishment, Colleen tried her best to comply with Cameron's demands. This behavior later leads her to being allowed to go outside and work in the yard. She even took care of the couple's two children and housework with no escape attempt. The neighbors were made aware that Colleen was just a live nanny and housekeeper. In 1981, Cameron surprised Colleen by allowing her to visit her family. She was allowed to visit them alone a few hours of the first day and revealed nothing to her family in fear of consequences. She was just thankful to see her family again. Her family recalls thinking their daughter had joined a cult because of her homemade clothes weight loss, lack of money, and absence through all these years. Her family was so relieved to see Colleen, they did not want to pressure her for answers, fearing that she wouldn't visit again. The phone rang during their visit and it was Cameron on the other line, stating he would be there to pick her up shortly. The next day, Colleen was able to visit for a second time with the company of Cameron. Cameron was introduced to her family as Michael, and he was her boyfriend. He made excuses for why they couldn't give Colleen's family their phone number or address to keep in touch further, such as they were in the middle of moving, and he would forward the address and contact information once they were settled. Upon leaving the visit, Colleen's mother insisted on capturing the moment and took a photograph of Colleen and Cameron, posed as a happy couple. Colleen's arms wrapped around Cameron's neck, both with a smile. Oh, how misleading that photo really was. Cameron and Colleen returned to his trailer in Red Bluff, where he started to regret giving his slave too much freedom. This led to another 23 hours in the wooden box for the next three years. She was given scraps of food and water, just enough to keep her alive, and a bedpan was positioned under her feet when she needed to relieve herself. The children were told that Kay had gone back home, so she was expected to remain quiet in the box, which was dark and little air to breathe, sometimes reaching temperatures of 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Colleen was reintroduced to the hooker's children and neighbors in 1983. She was even allowed to get a part-time job as a maid at a nearby motel. The tipping point for Janice was when Cameron wanted to make Colleen his second wife. He claimed she was such a good slave. They could dig a dungeon-style bunker and kidnap more slaves, and Kay would be able to train them. This is when Janice confided in her pastor. But not enough to let the cat out of the bag, but enough for the pastor to inform Janice that she was living in sin. In 1984, Janice visited Colleen at her part-time maid job at the nearby motel. She informed Colleen Cameron was not a part of the company. She didn't say the company didn't exist, but that her husband had lied to her this whole time and was not affiliated with them. Janice helped Colleen escape by taking her to a bus station where she made a phone call to her dad for bus fare and informed him she was coming home. But that wasn't the last call she made. She made a call to Cameron following the first, telling him she knew the company was an entire lie, that she was leaving and never coming back. Janice only agreed to help Colleen escape in exchange for a promise that Colleen wouldn't go to the police. Janice still thought she could revive her marriage and give Cameron a chance to reform. Janice returned home to destroy any kind of evidence that Colleen had ever been there, burning pictures, clothing, and the original slavery contract. Three months later, into the attempt to reform Cameron, Janice was unsuccessful at trying to save her marriage. She reported him to her pastor first, then the police. Cameron Hooker was arrested November 18, 1984. Janice reported her husband for the kidnapping and murder of another girl by the name of Marie Elizabeth Spanhake. She was 19 when she went missing on January 31st, 1976. Her body was never found. Janice told police it was her husband who kidnapped her and shot her in the abdomen using a pellet gun before strangling her to death. She even told police she was forced to help discard the body and her and Cameron buried Marie near Lassen Park. However, with no body or physical evidence, There were no charges brought to Cameron on this particular case. The only evidence found in the search of the hookers' home was a piece of a negative film, which was a picture of the original slave contract, with Michael Powers, Janice Powers, and Colleen's signature present. In exchange for total immunity, Janice struck up a deal to testify against her own husband in court. Hooker was sentenced to 104 years for sexual assault, kidnapping, and use of a knife in the process. He was originally eligible for parole in 2023, but had his hearing date moved up to 2015, by California's Elderly Parole Program. April 16, 2015, Cameron Hooker's request for parole was denied, making him ineligible again until the year of 2030. Now, I hope that this is not true and or will not happen, but however, this is the swirling talk that due to coronavirus, Cameron Hooker could be released for parole as early as March 2021. I will keep you updated on that. When Colleen returned home, she underwent extensive therapy. She tried to go back about her life and studied for an accounting degree after the trial ended. And a quote from a New York Daily News article, she stated, quote, I tried moving on to a normal life, but the misery followed, end quote. Colleen later had a string of failed marriages, having children of her own, before she joined and volunteered at Reading Women's Refuge Center, which is an organization to help abused women. She suffered chronic back and shoulder pain over the years as a result of her confinement, and Colleen has since changed her name, but still lives in California. Janice has also changed her name and is now a registered associate social worker and has worked as a mental health professional. She too still resides in California, however, her and Colleen have had zero contact. I'm not sure how I feel about Janice getting full immunity. It was her who made Colleen's escape possible, but it was her who also made the kidnapping possible as well. Let me know how you feel about this case. As always, thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, like, and share my content with your friends and family. Every listen helps my show grow. We now have exclusive Pocket Full of Crime t-shirts that are on my Instagram if you are interested in ordering. One quick extra shout out before the show ends. I just wanted to introduce you to Kyle Hernandez and he is the owner of Hold Fast, home inspections. So if you are in the state of Colorado, he is a certified home inspector and his business is built on integrity and principle. You can contact him at Kyle at holdfasthomeinspections.com or visit his website at www.holdfasthomeinspections.com. Be sure to let him know Rachel sent you. Until then stay weird my friends oh and one more thing hi mom